Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Strecht. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Quote, A few years ago, while visiting, or rather, rummaging about Notre Dame, the author of this book found, in an obscure nook of one of the towers, the following word, engraved by hand upon the wall. Ananke. Ananke, by the way, is the Greek personification of necessity or inevitability, but moving on with the quote. He questioned himself. He sought to divine who would have been that soul in torment which had not been willing to quit this world without leaving the stigma of crime or unhappiness upon the brow of the ancient church. Afterwards, the wall was whitewashed or scraped down. I know not which, and the inscription disappeared. For it is thus that people have been in the habit of proceeding with the marvelous churches of the Middle Ages for the last two hundred years. Mutilations come to them from every quarter, from within as well as from without. The priest whitewashes them, the archdeacon scrapes them down, and then the populace arrives and demolishes them. Thus, with the exception of the fragile memory which the author of this book here consecrates to it, there remains today nothing whatever of the mysterious word engraved within the gloomy tower of Notre Dame, nothing of the destiny which it so sadly summed up. The man who wrote that word upon the wall disappeared from the midst of the generations many centuries ago. The word in its turn has been effaced from the wall of the church. The church will, perhaps itself, soon disappear from the face of the earth. Unquote. As you might have guessed, that was Victor Hugo, writing in the preface of his novel Notre Dame de Paris, or as we call it in English, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like a lot of you, I was extremely surprised by the news this Monday about Notre Dame. I found myself looking at the news far more than I normally do. I kept watching footage of the fire. I kept reading stories about what was lost and what was saved. And I shoved aside the episode I'd been working on and thought, this is what I need to talk about this week. And I'm not going to get into what exactly happened in the fire, what survived and what was lost. More established media outlets have already done that. And, as of this recording, on April 19th, 2019, the story is still ongoing. What I want to talk about today is how we think about monuments as ongoing phenomena. They're not just one thing. Structures like Notre Dame don't just happen. They're constantly happening. Now, I've never been to Paris. Like most Americans, my primary relationship with Notre Dame is through Victor Hugo and film adaptations of Victor Hugo. And yes, that includes the Disney version of Hunchback, which I think is, it's fine. It's not the best Disney movie, but you know, it has its charms. But like a lot of people, I read Hugo's novel in high school. And I was surprised in that book by just how much architecture is in it. How much Victor Hugo talks about Paris and how beautiful and gloomy and impressive it is. 
That's not why I picked the book up. I wanted adventure and intrigue and excitement. But as you can tell from that preface I quoted earlier, it's that love for architecture that motivated Hugo to write the book in the first place. And that thought of inevitability, the inevitability of, he implies, decay, death, and destruction, that was on his mind when he wrote about Notre Dame. When Victor Hugo had that gloomy and frankly appropriately gothy musing about the inevitability of the church's decay, he was soon proved wrong. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about the several lives of Notre Dame. So the cathedral dates back to the 1100s. It took 200 years to build, which is mind-boggling, frankly. And nowadays, Gothic architecture is pretty well-respected. We think of the Middle Ages, its artwork, its architecture, as being pretty formative to, and important to, the history of Western culture. But that wasn't always the case. If you haven't already, go back and listen to episode 103 of this podcast, how Gothic got goth, and learn about what people used to think of churches like Notre Dame. For a long time, folks thought that Notre Dame looked hideous and barbaric. It wasn't long, historically speaking, for Parisians to be kind of embarrassed of the church. During the Renaissance, much of the Gothic features that so many people were mourning this past Monday were covered up with tapestries. All that stonework that took two centuries to complete yeah, put tapestries over it, cover it up. Later on in the 1500s, French Protestants, Huguenots, considered much of what was in the cathedral to be idolatrous. I'm not going to get into it right now, but Catholicism and Protestantism have had differences of opinions about images, art, the depiction of things. Um, it's complicated, but uh, Catholics have always been pretty cool with, you know, making sculptures of Jesus, Mary, the saints, all that. And some versions of Protestantism have found the very idea that you would depict an image of a thing, much less a divine thing, to be just a terrible idea. So they smashed it up. Later on, we had Louis XIV, the Sun King, who was another major anti-fan of Gothic architecture. Louis XIV had a very different aesthetic than medieval Parisians, and he ordered some big renovations to the cathedral. The choir, for instance, he wanted remade in marble. And those stained glass windows, those amazing, beautiful works of art that let in multicolored light and shadow and are some of the best things that you'll see in any church, like even me, a non-religious person, I love stained glass. Louis XIV ordered those removed and replaced with clear glass. He also ordered that a lot of the remaining Gothic features of the cathedral be taken down. And when I say remaining Gothic features, I mean a lot of the gargoyles that were still left on the cathedral. As a big fan of gargoyles and all their stony, gross, leering glory, I find this extraordinarily tragic. And that's not all. The cathedral's other big hit came during the French Revolution. You might have heard about the French Revolution. It was a whole thing. Revolutionaries were very justly angry at the French aristocracy and at the French church for a bunch of reasons. 
they made their way to Notre Dame and smashed the heads off a whole bunch of the statues in there. Uh, those heads were gone until the 1970s. In 1977, someone found a whole bunch of buried saint heads near Notre Dame, and those are now on display in a Parisian museum. Also during the revolution, the cathedral got deconsecrated. Uh, the statue of the Virgin Mary was taken down, and it was briefly replaced with a statue of the Goddess of Liberty. So for about five minutes, Notre Dame was a shrine to French secularism. Uh, later on, under Napoleon, it got re-churchified, re-consecrated. But it wasn't the same. It had been desecrated, modified, and it was falling apart. And in the 1820s and 1830s, when he was writing his book, Victor Hugo was very much being a sad goth literature boy, being sad about something really cool, inevitably dying, Ananke. But here's what Hugo didn't anticipate. He sad goth literary boyed so hard that the French government took action. And in 1844, the government ordered a restoration of the cathedral. The guy they hired was called Eugène Villers-le-Duc. He was an architect, and unlike Louis XIV or Renaissance Parisians or French revolutionaries, he was really into Gothic architecture. He wasn't Christian, but he was a big fan of old churches. Those were his thing. Old church restoration, like, was his career. Villers-le-Duc got to work on Notre Dame. And he said, we're going to make this thing look so intensely gothic, it might as well be wearing a Joy Division t-shirt. Okay, he didn't say that. But he really leaned into the gothic architecture legacy of the cathedral. For instance, Villers-le-Duc was responsible for Notre Dame's spire. Now, Villers-le-Duc didn't make that spire out of whole cloth. Notre Dame had a spire before he got to it, but it had a smaller one. He was able to find plans and blueprints from the Middle Ages that called for a larger spire, but, he surmised, just wasn't feasible from an engineering standpoint when the cathedral was first planned. However, by the 1840s, he was actually able to build a spire that conformed to the original design. He also put gargoyles all over it. Uh, Louis XIV didn't like gargoyles, but Villers-le-Duc sure did, so he re-gargoyled that cathedral real good. Which I think is kind of funny, because when we think of Notre Dame, we think of the gargoyles, and those are from the 1840s. We think of them as medieval, but really, those are 1840s recreations of medieval stuff. Something that Villers-le-Duc and any restorer has to think about also is... When you restore something, how far back do you go? To what state do you restore it? There's no real reset button. You always have to make decisions. For example, one of Notre Dame's most iconic features are a bunch of exterior statues of biblical figures who kind of loom over the entrance. And when these statues were first built, they were painted and gilded kind of like ancient Greek statues. They weren't white marble. They were painted, and they looked really weird, actually, with paint on them. But Villers-le-Duc had to make a decision. Was he going to gild and paint them again, or was he just going to leave them as blank stone statues? He chose to leave them as blank stone statues, 
probably because he thought gothic stuff was great and that doesn't leave a lot of room for you know color and when he was done that is the start of notre dame as we know it that spire that fell this past monday that was villet le duc spire notre dame will have another one probably based on his designs as opposed to medieval designs and it will have another one it will be restored and it will probably look a lot like what we had until earlier this week. It is one of the best documented structures on the face of the earth. And I'm not going to tell you to not mourn for Notre Dame or to feel bad about what we lost in the fire. Nor am I going to tell you that the restoration will somehow make everything better or erase what we lost, because that's not what happened. What I can tell you, though, is that change, even tragic change, is a regular part of the life cycle of monuments. It can be tempting to think of them as precious relics or structures out of time, but they don't just reflect the time they were built in. They reflect all the time they've lived through and marks of aging, decay, or other sundry negative things are okay. Lots of monuments have had them. Here's one that a lot of Americans are familiar with. The Statue of Liberty has a well-known green hue. It didn't have that when it first stood. France's gift to the United States originally had a bright copper sheen, and it only later oxidized and turned green. In the late 20th century, restoration efforts had to decide, do we want to go with copper or do we want to go with green? They kept the marks of decay that we now associate with the statue, because those marks of decay are now part of Lady Liberty's identity. Also, the Eiffel Tower used to be red. When it was first constructed, it was this giant red scaffold thing in the middle of Paris, and people hated it. Then, during the 1920s and 1930s, it had a big advertisement for Citron on the side of it. It only later became the stark gray monument that we associate with Paris now. Istanbul's Hagia Sophia has weathered fires, multiple earthquakes, multiple restorations, it's had careers as a Catholic church, an Orthodox church, it's been a mosque, it's now a museum, and all of those events and tragedies and changes build the Hagia Sophia's current identity. It wouldn't be what it is without all of that experience. Even more extreme are Japanese castles. Most of the Japanese castles you see today post-date World War II. The one big exception is Himeji Castle, which survived the bombing. And when you look at postcards of lots of Japanese castles, you'll usually see Himeji. It's also the castle in You Only Live Twice, an amazing disaster fire of a James Bond movie, but I digress. But a lot of those are modern restorations. The important thing with restoring Japanese castles wasn't reconstructing them brick for brick or timber for timber. In fact, the inside of most of them now are more akin to community centers or museums, and Osaka Castle has an elevator in it, which is pretty non-castle-like. No, the more important thing is that they give their communities a sense of place. And they are no longer the houses for lords or rich people. They're now what a town rallies around. They are now a source of history and identity. And often, reconstruction is part of that history or identity. We lose buildings and earthquakes. We lose monuments to fires. But we can remake them. 
because we're always remaking them. We are always improving the Statue of Liberty. We are always giving the Eiffel Tower a new paint job. We are always doing something new with the Hagia Sophia. There is no one single unitary version or identity or use or way of seeing one monument. They're always in flux. And because of that, I'm afraid I have to disagree a little bit with sad literary goth boy Victor Hugo. There is no ananke. There is no inevitability. If we choose, we can rebuild things. People have chosen to rebuild Notre Dame. The restoration efforts have received billions of dollars in donations. And we can make that choice again and again with every monument, with every structure, and with everything that gives our communities a sense of place. As always, this is a listener-supported show. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you, all of you, who support the show every month. We're on Apple Podcast. Give us ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews help other people discover the show. Also, I love reading what you think of the podcast. So go on there, give us ratings and reviews, and tell me what you think of me. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. The show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 